Hello and welcome to the Challenging University podcast with me, your host, Tony Kent. Now, how do you put power into the hands of local communities to preserve and celebrate their culture? And how hard is it to operate in the creative arts when you didn't go to university? Keith Jeffrey is today's guest and he began his career as a 19-year-old with a passion for music. He also had a desire to deliver fantastic experiences to his deindustrialized community. Today, he helps working class professionals to thrive in the professional environments where class and accent bias are still used to hold people back. In our conversation, we discuss the positive power of giving government funding to teenagers, the importance of preserving culture in working class communities, how it feels to be involved in some of the UK's foremost cultural projects when you've not been to the right theatres, why class is still an issue and how being honest about our backgrounds and experiences makes for a more balanced workplace. There's also some incredible insights and stories from Keith's own career, including bringing Nirvana to the UK and providing a stage for David Bowie. I know you're going to love it. Hi, Keith. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for agreeing to come on the Challenging University podcast. Good to have you here. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So let's get cracking with that. Um, We've met over LinkedIn. Yeah. But for the listeners today and the listeners to come, could you please share what your full name is and what it is that you do? Um, My name is Keith Jeffrey. I'm a coach and consultant and I specialise in helping working class professionals achieve their professional potential. Love it. And that was why I was desperate to talk to you. Um, But before we get into that, um, is that, you know, something that you thought you would be doing when you were at school? Could you share what your school experience was like? Yeah, well, I I don't think the concept of coaching, let alone specialising with working class professionals, was even a concept back then. Um, I'm not the notion of being a professional anything apart from being a professional footballer. I think that was the only time yeah. where the word professional ever came into sort of any any of my conversations was um just not on the horizon. Um mm. I I grew up in the Northeast. Um I was um industrial you know, decline was full on by that point. I left school in 1981 when I was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, the level of unemployment at that rate was um, was bettered only by um, Northern Ireland. So, we, we, you know, so the wow. career prospects were never really very good. And my family, I, was trying to th- I think my dad was an electrician. My mother worked on the switchboard at the hospital. Yeah. Um, it, and the bloke across the road owned a, tra- a haulage company, mm-hmm. but that was about it. So the notion of professionals, lawyers, you know, accountants, people working in culture, creativity, any none of that was was even on a, on the horizon at the time. And tell me um, a bit more, actually, about the area. Where in the northeast did you live? So I'm. Um, Born in a place called Wall's End, which is mm-hmm. named after uh, Hadrian's Wall. It is the end of Hadrian's Wall. Um, so ah. it's like, um, sort of halfway between Newcastle and Tynemouth. Um, right. 
big on shipyards. The biggest sh um, uh, ships in the world were, were built there. And I've got this very dim and distant memory of the Essor Northumbria being built at the bottom of our road. So it was this huge, gigantic skyscraper size ship being built, which was towering over the the end of um, the lane across the road. So we, it was, that was something, Swan Hunters was the, the, the shipyards were world famous. Yeah. Um, and the other world famous place that, that was and had was was and boys club, which had a, a steady stream of professional footballers churning out of there. Steve Bruce went there. I think, um, um, Peter Beardley went oh, there. Yeah. yeah. So there's lots of, you know, wow. very well-known players came through and, um, I, I, my team Munich won, won the 1975 five-a-side competition. Right. Um, last claim of fame in sporting wise anyway. And and so at the time you were growing up and going to school, what was happening to the area and how did that kind of impact what you were told about life beyond school and what, what you could study for? Um I struggle with that because I wasn't that that conversation never happened. Mm. None of that. I mean certainly not. I mean, my mum and dad used to work, what are you going to do next? And like, I was just had no idea. I had no concept. But at school, I was, academically, I was quite bright. I was good in just, at just about everything. You know, I was always in the top one or two in like literally every subject. So I, I didn't, so yeah. it wasn't obvious that I should go and do English or language or biology and yeah. the only advice i was given was well computers are co going to be big in the future so what you mm. need is maths physics biology yeah uh, maths physics that sort of thing you know i also yeah. did have ambitions to be a pilot when i was a teenager which yeah. required you to join the air training corps and yeah um get advanced qualifications in maths and physics so i guess i sort of followed that sort of route mm -hmm. um but i could i don't know I, I i could not get excited by it after after a while and, and so you left school at 18 was there a sixth form yeah school? yeah so so i did me me all levels yeah um did terribly at them. I mean, to be honest, I think I was, I was badly let down by the school in a, in a whole number of ways. One is like, you know, I don't recall ever anybody taking a serious interest in who I was and what I was about yeah. and where I, I was going. And I just sort of feel like a bit of a zombie going through that. Right. I just sort of did what I had. And then I hit my O-levels and just fell apart. Yeah, and mm. part of, there was two things going on. There's one is there was a where the school could have helped me was just sort of training and exam technique. Yeah, it's just how to do these things, which is this is a thing which keeps cropping up in, in my career is that these obstacles are put on you in your way and often feel as though they're being set up to 
allow you to fail rather than you to to succeed and you're not given any help to overcome that obstacle mm. um mm. and then the other problem i faced was i discovered music when i was 15 yeah <laughs> uh, i Terrible. just got obsessed with music in all its forms and really after that point mm. nothing else mattered um I've got to ask you what the band was that, or the movement that stopped you in your tracks. What was well, it? it was, I'll tell you what it was. It was um, the album Pile Driver by Status Quo. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Love Bit Quo. <laughs> yeah. And um, well, I mean, I had that album. Yeah, I'd accumulated some records over, over the years and then just was playing it in my bedroom and all of a sudden something clicked. Yeah. And then within six months, you know, then I discovered John Peel. Mm. Then just everything changed then and all of a sudden I started to find who I was. Yeah. And that took precedence over anything else, really. Mm-hmm. It did for a long time. I, I, for the first time I found some friends I shared some interests with and we started to, they were in, in bands and they had me, um, and gradually I've started to find a world where I belonged for the first time. Hmm. And what was the live music scene like where you uh, grew up then? Well, it, it, I mean, so I was growing up in Newcastle. I don't know if you remember Lindisfarne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. They, they did Fog of the Time. Fog of the Time, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was dominated by a bunch of hairy hippies, really, all in mm-hmm. the And there were R&B bands. I remember I had a particular um, uh, hatred of a band called the Eastside Torpedoes, which for some reason I just... Just, just whelmed me up like no, no end. Yeah, I need um, to check them out now. So, what what was become apparent was that there was a whole, um, you know, we were all basically. I, I got me into music through status quo, but then really embraced the whole punk rock ethos. Then mm-hmm. and this there was this do it yourself mentality, mm-hmm. and you'd hear all these records on John Peel by bands from very obscure places mm. which sounded great amazing you know um bands from like um sheffield and leeds and manchester and liverpool yeah. from newcastle which was which was interesting so mm. what we then my, my newcastle city council ran a um regular sessions on how to be in a band you know so and it wasn't um so it wasn't just like how to how to play an instrument how to play drums or whatever it was all about how to put a pa system together wow how to run a gig you know all all that sort of things yeah overwhelmed it was a place called special projects it i think it disappeared a long time ago they were overwhelmed with young kids like me who were yeah. passionate about music. Um, and in the midst of those 
discussions and events, they, they said to us, look, why don't you, we, can, we can't cope with the level of interest. Why don't you go and get your own venue? And mm. that's when my ears pricked up because I can't play an instrument. I'm not a musician. Mm. I definitely cannot sing. Right. But I, can, I felt as though that was, I could play a role there. So I sort of stepped forward and just got a grip of it. And so this was when I was 19. Mm. We, I, I, I vividly remember this. I, I had to, so there was a, a some funding, there's a funding opportunity to buy, but for capital. And you had to put a business plan and application together. I wrote a business plan for a music venue in my biology jotter. Right. Wow. And we put an application in to Newcastle mm -hmm. City Council based on a particular venue that we're building that mm. we'd identified that we reckoned we could convert. So mm. um we got um we asked for a quarter of a million pounds, they gave us hundred and twenty thousand pounds, which when you were nineteen? Yeah. And I mean, at the time, I mean, I do remember. Don't know, at the time, it was the remember the big Brixton riot, nineteen eighty. Yes. Mm -hmm. There was a big sense of uh, young people mm -hmm. um, just being disenfranchised from every opportunity. Uh, yeah. We, I mean, I remember egging it up in the application form, like you know, if you don't give us this money, Newcastle burns. You know, it was that. Sort of <laughs> Um, I mean, that's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I think they they were quite clever about it. They said, right, we can't say no to this, but we'd mm. only give them half of what they asked for, so that it really kiboshes the whole thing. Right. So what that meant was, because um, I remember being in the meeting, being told we'd only, we'd only got £120,000 and then walking out in a massive huff about it because, like, well, that's not what we asked for, you know. Yeah. Um, I was young at the time, you know. Um, yeah. And then that led us on a, like, a long journey from that point on. Mm -hmm. Where we needed to... That money was there, and I was not going to let that go. No. Um, what we needed to do then was find another venue, another building. Mm -hmm. And it took us another two years to find that building. Right, okay. And in the mid, you know, like young people, 19, 20-year-olds, mm. they all, they were mainly in bands, they were mainly interested in playing music you know um mm. i didn't have that but i did have this so i was the one who i literally was at times the only person representing young people in music in meetings with mm. the council and i had to there were meetings where i had to just round up my girlfriend and her mates and my mates and we'd all go along and look weird with dyed hair and stuff and pretend to be uh, representing the youth of uh, Newcastle at that time, but we, but we, yeah, but we held on to the money. That was that was the important. 
Okay, so because yeah, that was the question in my mind. You secured the funding, but it yeah. wasn't enough for the original venue. Yeah. So you were granted the time to find a venue yeah. that, that would fit within that budget. Um how did you approach kind of I just, you know, when I think being 19 and going, right, first I'm going to write a bid in my biology job yeah. and a business plan, and then I'm going to acquire a venue and fit it out. And how did you work your way through that? With the help of uh, youth workers at the time. Um, ah, okay. so, so it was, so the, the, the city council special projects team were working yeah. with us and they suggested, and they helped us put the application together. We, we had to do the work ourselves, but they yeah. helped sort of frame it and shape it. And we got yeah. some supporters internally. So I remember the deputy chief executive of Newcastle City Council, a guy called John Keane, very nice guy, mm. very interested in helping us through this, you know. So I think there was that there was some institutional support there, if you if you yeah. like, but we're ready to buy the fact that we were young and enthusiastic, had a genuine issue, but also had a genuine yeah. solution as well. So that was that was the thing. What did you call the venue? Uh, it ultimately became Riverside. Right. Okay. But if you were at all interested in music in Newcastle in the in the eighties, it has become like an iconic venue. Um, right. Nirvana played their first European show there, for example. Um, <laughs> wow. Oasis, Oasis had a famously riotous concert there where um, fights broke out. It was subsequently described as a riot, but it wasn't quite that bad. But um, right. David Bowie played there as well. Um, you know, oh. so, there were, so it was it was groundbreaking venue for yeah. alternative music for um, but we put on jazz. We presented like the first African music that was coming into the country at that time. Yeah, Did all sorts of things. Wow. Um. So you've kind of. Uh, I'm just saying. There's lots of strands that I'm, you know, thinking you could pursue because I'm, I'm seeing that, you know, that love of music and then John Peel. You know, famous for bringing bands to the fore that wouldn't get radio play, and then you've created this groundbreaking venue, and you've brought Nirvana in um, yeah. and uh, offered an arena for Oasis fans. Some yeah. um, <laughs> quite in. Um, how did you find it? Like you said, you're working with youth workers and you've got um, support from like, institutional support. Yeah. Um, was there any point at which um, you feel like people felt, because you said you're academically bright, yeah. like you, you felt you missed out on opportunities to further your education or, or did people like at the city council expect that you would go on and do that or would be doing it based on the talent that you had? Um, I don't think the level of thinking was that sophisticated. My, my sister went to university. She was, mm. she was 
um she obviously bright as well and she went and she was going she was doing languages so she was spending time in russia and in france so she was she wow. was experiencing all that the only thing i cared about for about 10 years was riverside that was the only thing that mattered to me i didn't the thought of i earned almost no money um right i was you know 100 quid a week i was getting um yeah. and some weeks not even that um it was very financially um hugely challenging mm. but it was all i wanted to do you know that, mm. the, the notion of doing anything there were times when it got financially difficult yeah i would then think about applying for other jobs um but if i hadn't been because I, I, i've reflected on this quite a lot um we were initially supported by the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we were getting... Um, the, the other thing to say about Riverside, it was formed as a workers' cooperative. Oh, so, right. So we were all... Wow. And there, were, there was a... Um, and there was a community cooperative who owned the, the assets and the workers' cooperative ran it. So, you know, but it was very, you know, we were all... None of us yeah. felt that there should be private incentive going into this mm. and so we got into this sort of cycle of like um I, we were running a nightclub venue with a yeah. 10 30 license as well right <laughs> which was the magistrates and the police were vehemently opposed to giving us any right. other sort of license which compromised um, our ability to generate a sustainable business model um yeah so that was um, supported and funded by things like the Enterprise Allowance. We were all getting housing benefit. We were all... Yeah. So there was financial... That type of social benefits were, were in place, which enabled us to survive. And that's all we were doing to survive. I'm not sure that, given the way things are now, that we would be allowed to do any of this, which is a, a real tragedy. Yeah, and and that is something that um, strikes me. Like you say, is that you were running something that was of cultural importance and vital to the local community, um, but you needed income support in order yeah. to live. And that seems crazy to me. But like you say, um, oh, there's. I heard someone talking about using that enterprise allowance scheme to, I guess, like you, like they actually started their business, and without that, they they wouldn't have been able to to achieve what they have today. Um, well, was it, um, I think Business Insider have just done something about it, and I spoke to them about it. And the guy from Superdry apparently uh, on, um, on enterprise allowance scheme, mm-hmm. and what and the. It, you know, it was 40 quid a week mm. um, and plus whatever you can earn on top of that. And it was a way of, um, cyn- some of the cynical critics were saying it's a way of massaging the employment figures. Right. The other way to look at it is it's saying, well, look, let's invest in young people. Yeah. Do something. Um, yeah. Because all of that, you know, I subsequently went on to, to 
you know, decently paid work. And I reckon amount of tax and NI and everything mm. I've more than paid back that investment. And yeah, when people start talking about people on the door being lazy scroungers, you know, all of that. Mm. So I've I've had three years of my life unemployed. Mm. I have I know people do not want to live like that they want to make something of their lives yeah and if, and we should help those people and we should invest in them and yeah. it's not a lot of money to be able to do that we get tapping you know research and development mm. gets tax breaks quite right yeah. but if we invested in young people wherever they are and just believed in them and just allowed them to go out and take risks they will learn huge amounts and then in the fullness of time will contribute that back to, yeah. so, to society and the national exchequer in one way or another yeah. in the long run and tell me then from these young people that started out riverside 10 gave it 10 years of your life yeah what happened from there um well by by 1990 i was um the thrill of living on 100 quid a week was uh, was wearing a bit thin by that point. Um, and I got another job where I got twice as much money as I mm. was earning. Yeah. Um, running a venue in Cambridge called uh, mm -hmm. The Junction. So I, mm -hmm. um, so I went down there. They were facing their own financial challenges. We managed to yeah. turn that around. Mm -hmm. Then from – and that, that was a bit of a – eye-opener because it was the first time I'd really worked with middle-class people. Okay. <laughs> oh, is this what they look like? You know, and people with like posh accents by and large, you know, people who'd mm -hmm. been to university, who'd got degrees yeah. and all of that. Mm. And um, they had a, I, I sort of had a stereotypical view of people who lived in Cambridge, Right, mm -hmm. every visit it would just be on the telly, you know, it would be sort of yeah. expect. And it wasn't like that at all. But they also had stereotypes of me of mm. remember when the board comes in that in the seventies there was a new this drama series based in the nineteen twenties and the thirties. Ah. Roland was in it. And okay. their view of um people like me was a cross between when the board comes in and and the likely lads, you know, it was that's all okay. they knew of. And so I'm I'm wandering around, very yeah. rough around the edges. Yeah. You know, people and fairly straightforward and what needed to be done. And just um and I had my own per personal flaws as well. So I was a bit miserable, a bit aggressive, and I got a this reputation of being this tall, bald, aggressive Geordie, you know, who was <laughs> um, which had its upsides and had its downsides, you know. Mm. But they had a stereotype of me and treated me. Yeah, like... yeah. And it's—I was thinking about what reference points I might have had because I remember a little bit. Likely lads was on the TV when I was very small, and I remember like or feed the same pets. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah. I yeah, would have gone through a period growing up because I grew up in the south where what you see is a stereotypical view 
Um, I thought everyone from the northeast was Jimmy Nail, basically. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> to be fair, quite a lot of people are like that. But, uh, he's, you know, there's a, you know, in a professional context, I, I suddenly mm. started hitting barriers at that point, um, mm. where, which, I then I look, I wasn't particularly aware of at the time, mm. but actually come back now where class was starting yeah. to play a bit of an issue. I then went to uh, set up a media centre in Huddersfield in mm-hmm. the mid-90s. So that was um, that was a, a new capital build. It was a, the idea was that Huddersfield had identified that digital and creative industries yeah. were going to be the future. Mm. I mean, I started when I started in 93, I think mm. it was. So, I mean, this was before the internet. It was before. Yeah, so yeah. they weren't wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah, but yeah, and I remember doing my research into, because I don't know if you remember, you used to have to do, if you do market research, the key mm-hmm. the key tool you used was yellow pages. So you go through right. the yellow pages, and uh, mm-hmm. so I'd look up graphic designers, and there'd be about four, you know, and it'd be, yeah. you know, there's no... There's no TV company, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but when we built it, it worked, and uh, it was, and I think there was a that was a good time for me because there was a sense of we were doing something about the future in a mm. place like Huddersfield, you know, which seemed completely um, the last place in the world that you build a media center before the internet um uh, i remember i used to have um I, I got an email address in about 94 i think it was and yeah. nobody the email because yeah. i even remember i've got this big memory of there being an email directory where everybody who had an email was on this like web page yeah email um Wow. Well, um, what were people producing in your media centre? What was coming out of there? Um, CD-ROMs from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a bit of that. There's a bit of graphic design. Um, there was some creative companies in there, management companies. Mm-hmm. Um, a whole mix of people who what we tried to put together an interesting mix to develop an inter economy mm-hmm. so that they could trade with each other um yeah the the key to it though and it worked right from the outset we were always mm. self-financing which was which was really wow exciting. yeah and we had a we put a cyber cafe in 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 there and it yeah. worked well um yeah so it, it was all very very early early days um yeah but really exciting at the same time yeah and um where did you go on to from there? Well, personally, as I'd say to come back to the northeast, I went. Uh, I got appointed to run the National Glass Centre in Sunderland. Um, it's now sadly closed, uh, but that was. I don't know if you remember. Sort of towards the end of the nineties, was a big spate of lottery-funded capital project yeah. buildings being 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 built around the country. Yeah. And in Sunderland, Sunderland is where glass making started in in this country. Right. 
right. back to the days of the um, Venerable Benedict Biscott, and there was a, and this was slightly emblematic of what's what's happened in this country. On the Sunderland's also a massive shipyard building, yes, shipbuilding, yeah. um area, and on the site of one of the shipyards was mm. built the National Glass Centre. Right. To celebrate glass, glass making, particularly in Sunderland. So mm. it was an exhibition space. And uh, they'd reinvented the company called Sunderland Glassworks to make a particular type of blown glass. Um, yeah. Which was particularly useful for um, stained glass and so on. Ah, yeah. Um, and it was a visit attraction. And yeah. that um, ran, I was there for about a couple of years. Um, had lots of challenges there. Um, mm. Then went to run uh, to work at setting up the uh, Baltic Center Art Center on Gateshead. Yeah. Again, another yeah. one. So, couple of projects. Yeah. Um, neither of those two were very, very happy experiences for me. Um, um, partly because of the. The people I was I was working with didn't we didn't mm. really see eye to eye at all on very many things, which I found slightly odd in some circumstances. That's mm. a hit. It um, had a big financial hit when the glass factory, which was actually a tenant of the of the centre, went bust. So I'd been there right. months. That went bust. Almost like a lot of money. So we had to go into emergency mode. Right. And that created sets of tensions around that, which found it found it very difficult to work there. That, that and then the Baltic came up. That mm. was not what I the DI was I was sold. So right. I then went into freelance world for a bit, um, ran a company of advising digital startups. Yeah. Then um and got a contract to work in Bradford mm -hmm. running a program called the Urban Cultural Programme, which was about celebrating five cities of Yorkshire, using culture to develop a tourism brand. Yeah. Um, did some interesting things there. Um, then my next proper job, if you like, was was as the founding director, chief executive of a place called Quad in right. Derby, which is a centre for art and film. Again, lottery funded yeah. capital project. Yeah. Uh, art gallery, cinema, digital workshops, cafe bar. That's yeah. It. See, you've had that real thread like throughout your life of what well, the, the arts and working within like the regions and communities, and uh, I guess using funding to create something that has a positive impact um on on the area so that that's really sort of quite it seems like it started like you say you you you, you came across the quo yeah. <laughs> and then it kind of went from there so how does that translate into becoming a, a coach to working class professionals how does that right. happen yeah it's all and then from i was in Derby for, well, I still live in Derby, but I uh, ran quad for 
eight years and then I went to Coventry University to set up a subsidiary of the university called um, Coventry University Social Enterprise, which is all about helping people start up social enterprise. Wow. Wow. And in the midst of all that, I was, I, I started to reflect on my journey, my professional journey. Yeah. And when I look back, the things that I took the greatest pleasure in was um, helping people do things very simply. Mm -hmm. That's where it sort of started. So, so for example, one of the things I did do in the midst of that was I had a record label for yeah. uh, for um, five releases, um, which first one did really well. The second, the other lot just uh, did not put it that way. But when <laughs> I look back on that, it was the opportunity that I was able to provide people to do something interesting, and then it, and it's and with the venue with Riverside, mm. I could create something that other people could express themselves in. So there's always yeah. that sense of like, I can, that's what I'm about. I help helping people do the things that they want to do. And when I was in, so in the midst of Coventry University and doing the work there, I wasn't very satisfied there. And mm. I was thinking about, well, what can I do next? I start, I, one of the reasons I went from Quad to the university was I couldn't get anywhere else in cultural creative sectors. Right. And so I had to have that fundamental rethink of what is it I'm here to do? What what am I, you know, I'm getting on a bit now. I haven't got that long left in professional terms. So I don't <laughs> want to be as stressed out mm. um, as I have been throughout my career worrying about Mm. the future worrying about is this going to work mm. and I, what I found that I was always good in one-to-one -one relationships with professional relationships um, mm. I was always interested in helping people do what they wanted to do and that's when I then discovered coaching and mm. explored that a bit had a really bad experience with a coach that I had um, and right. thought she's not interested in me right. and went and qualified as a coach um just, that? <laughs> I, I felt it's a coaching relationship's a very precious thing you you need yeah. to feel um that your coach is interested in you and what it is you're doing um yeah. and as i think when i left Coventry University I went to I knew that's what I wanted to do and I, I wanted to coach people I wanted to help people realize the potential that's mm. my life purpose I want to help people realize their potential mm. and that started off and I still do a lot of work with the cultural professionals but I started posting now and then about working class yeah about having an accent yeah the majority of the the art sector is a very classist sector. It is very 60% um, of uh, cultural professionals come from a privileged background. I think that was a definition. So, that, yeah. which is, and everything that goes with culture. Yeah. Response to in, 
the subsidised cultural sector will respond to middle class values and aspirations and use. Mm. Um, so as soon as I started talking about working class, being working class, having an accent, not mm. going to university, that really resonated with people. And then yeah. I started talking to um, other people about working class and then just sort of shifted, look, this is what I'm here to do. I, I've been on a sort of a journey where yeah. I've been unemployed, unemployable, um, mm. not gone to university. I've had an accent. I've, mm. I've been lucky because in the 80s and 90s, there was public money there to help me. Yeah. But nobody else helped me. You know, I mm. give and look, I didn't enjoy the journey. And yeah. I wanted to make sure that if you're wanting to do something professionally with your career, mm. you need help. And it isn't money's important, but you also need somebody to act who can help you see what the barriers are, see what the obstacles are, understand mm. the landscape, that friendly space where you can mm. see all those buggers out there aren't as good as me, but they're getting all the jobs and they're getting mm. the promotions. And it's only because they went to the right university, they talk in the same sort of way. Mm. And I have to work harder and harder just to keep up with them. And it ain't fair. Yeah. And my my job is to help you sustain you through that whilst also recognizing that these power structures exist and they ain't going away. Mm. So you should focus on what you care about, what what you are passionate about, what what and embrace your authenticity to carve out a professional career, a work life that's that's meaningful for you. Yeah. And you mentioned that when you were at the junction, you sort of said in hindsight, you saw the barriers that you faced and no doubt these barriers that you're helping your clients with. So what would they be? What would you typify? Well, I remember a good, a good example. I had a conversation with an arts council officer who said, I said, well, you should be funding local bands. Mm. And they said, well, we don't fund amateur music. Why? <laughs> Okay. So, uh, yeah, and and what you meant was rock bands. You know? Yeah. Now that's sort of accepted. Um, but I, I had conversations about. Um, I, I I had had conversations about my accent. I had to tone down my accent right. quite a lot so people could just understand me. Right. Um, the it was the first time I'd been in a sort of a, a funded environment, if you like, mm. and that required, and the work that was being presented was not, was, was work I hadn't come across before. And there was a whole set of unspoken conventions which came alongside that, which I mm -hmm. regularly contravened. Um, mm -hmm. And gradually, just started to feel more and more like a fish out of water the longer the longer I was there. Mm. And who helped you to navigate that? Well, nobody. Right. 
I mean, I, that, that's what I'm looking back on my career. Mm. I, I, um, you know, you have all these like, you know, who was your most inspirational teacher at school? Mm. I, I can't name you a single one who inspired me or helped me in any, any way and throughout yeah. the journey. I mean, I had friends and colleagues and we were sitting and have a moan about things to, to mm. you know, but there was nobody who, there was never even the concept of helping me develop on a, in any of my jobs. Um, mm. The last, I mean, to be fair to the junction, um, the last professional development conversation, performance appraisal things, you know, those annual mm. things that they do, was at the junction. That was in 1992. Wow. Um, every job since then, it was, it was partly my, because I, I was sort of driven by anxiety, so I was trying to mm. solve problems for people. I'm always there to try and solve the problem, and the notion of talking about me and what I wanted and where I I still find uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, so nobody, so that never, ever, but nobody really worked very hard to help me work through that either. You know, people who I now, like my line managers, the chairs on my board, you know, that I was working yeah. through. That. So there's just, if I'd known that I should actually go and get a coach, get a mentor, yeah, I would have had an entirely different career, one which I would have enjoyed more, be more successful in. Yeah, uh, but I think going back to working class roots, when mm. my dad was a foreman electrician, he didn't have a professional coach to help him understand his career obstacles because yeah. he got up and he fixed things every day. You know, that's it's a completely different world that I was operating like, yeah barely talk about you know what I mean yeah no it's very true yeah there is that um challenge of when you are yeah when your professional experiences are completely alien to those that anyone in your family might have experienced when you can't go and ask people for advice um yeah or you can't share your wins or because they are in a completely alien context to, to everyone else. So I, yeah, I completely understand that. Um, what, what are the, some of the common challenges that your clients might face? So what, what are you, I mean, it could just be those things that we've spoken about, but I'm, I'm intrigued because well, a lot of people would say, well, the world has moved on since then, but, I don't know. Well, the, 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 there's two things really, and they're, they're interconnected. One, one is confidence, feeling mm. able to claim their space and be confident and authentic in who they are. So spending yeah. time trying to rebuild the confidence to say, you've got here for a bunch of very good reasons. Yeah. You should celebrate that. Yeah. That entitles you to go on a, you know, so it's about giving permission a lot of the time. Mm. And and that builds into often imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. which is um, where you feel like you don't deserve this. Mm. And you respond in all sorts of ways, often quite unhealthy ways. So you can, um, you can stress because, um, 
you think there are rules in mm. to do this thing and you don't know what those rules are and you you you're worried about asking for the, what those rules are because you you that exposes your vulnerability which means that you'll get fired won't you um you know so that mm. other people overwork and overachieve and go go nuts to just to justify their position mm. so once like that's often those two issues are are very um very common more 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 often than not mm-hmm. and that comes from being working class in a middle class world you know mm-hmm. that's just you know it's just i suppose that's natural mm-hmm. nobody middle class people aren't out to create problems and barriers for mm-hmm. working class people but they do by accident Sometimes, sometimes it's quite deliberate, but uh, that's another subject. Um, It's just whatever, whatever the motivations behind it, it is just a fact of life, you know. And then that manifests itself in the top jobs tend to go to or to people with um, middle and upper class backgrounds. Yeah, well, and that is that is a fact. I, there's a game that I like to play um, when you were talking about the art sector, and if I'm watching like uh, like Taskmaster, for example, because you know I really love comedy and I do some stand up, but what fascinates me is the number of people on television, uh, like in in comedy, which you would think well, a lot of people think it's it would probably be very equally distributed yeah. in terms of people's backgrounds, but so many have gone to elite universities yeah. and it kind of makes you go, oh, right. So <laughs> what, how, how do you operate in that space? And I know, you said, I think Rob Beckett has written a book about his experiences yeah. as a, a working class comedian in what is a very um, middle-class world. Um what do you think then has stood you in good stead throughout your career? Um, I think I've, I've diagnosed this condition I have. It's not, it's not really a condition, but it's, like, it's a mindset of defensive pessimism. Oh. <laughs> um, and I am, what that means is you just assume everything's going to go wrong. Right. And plan accordingly. Mm. And so when I've gone into my various roles, yeah. I've brought that mindset to it and planned accordingly, you know. So to make sure yeah. that the plans that we've got in place yeah. are going to work. That's yeah. in good in good stead yeah. at one level. Yeah. Actually done me head in. Like, yeah. like I'm permanently stressed, permanently worried yeah. it's not going to go right. Mm. Not, that's not a good way to live. But I think if I'd understood that as a concept 20, 30 years ago yeah, and balanced it out, because the the, op, the the other side of it is there are strategic optimists, people who just assume everything's going to go swimmingly and yeah. you still have to do the work, but what's that to worry yeah. about? So you need to get a balance between that where you are thinking critically and positively about the future 
mm-hmm. plan, get your so your plans are, are robust without bringing the trauma and anxiety and the stress that that I brought to it. Mm-hmm. But it, it, my projects usually work, and that that's that's what's good stood me in good stead from that point of view. Not healthy for doing it, but you know. But what you said, you you certainly, I was looking through and going, I remember like, you know, some of the projects you talked about and like Baltic was seen as like a, um, like a beacon. It was that kind of, yeah, these, you know. These, I, these places were, you know, and, yeah. and, and art and they are important to the places. Because yeah. uh, I, I was doing some work in London um, with an arts company and they were like name dropping left, right and centre. And saying, yeah. they said to us, um, haven't you been to see Punch Drunk? I don't know if you know Punch Drunk, they're this sort of immersive theatre company. Oh, okay. Very, very well known, mm. um, particularly in the theatre world, highly respected. I'm sure yeah. the work's fantastic. I saw a documentary on it at the telly. The notion of, of somebody travelling down from, like me, from the Midlands to one of their performances, the cost of of that yeah. prohibited. Yeah. So immediately you get excluded from those sorts of conversations because yeah. London has all these things that the rest of the country culturally doesn't have. Um, yeah. And it's just that that infuriates me this day. Like, but it's so it, mm. you, these exclusions are therefore built up because yeah. you haven't seen this with it, you don't know it, it, it you know, it, it sort of it happens right across. The sector. Yeah, yeah, and and how about um, apart from going to see Punch Drunk? Um, what's next for you? Have you got a sense of? I mean, you know, not that you haven't already achieved. Well, I'm, I'm seeking to just develop this sort of ongoing support for working class professionals. I've, what I've done is I've codified everything that I know into a book now, which is going to be coming out early in the oh. year called Passion and Purpose. Nice. That's And it's a handbook, a guide to helping you real, a working class person realise their professional potential. Yeah. Um, So we talk a lot about confidence in there, talk a lot about having a plan and recognise that actually... If you are going to pursue your career, yeah. If, when you start out, I guess you you always think I'm going to be at the top of the tree in this particular field. Mm. If you work in class, that the odds of that are very poor. Mm. Um, for, for for the reasons that that we've been talking about. Mm. And actually, is that really what you want? And and the reason mm. why. I, called passion and purpose is that you need to find the thing that you are passionate about which then mm. gives you your professional purpose because yeah. if you are doing that every day mm. that's when you start to really realize your potential and it gives you a chance to go further now if that is about being the head of your particular field. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Go with that. Mm. But what I realized when I started on my journey was that, and I only really think was that 
purpose, that knowledge mm. changes over time. Yeah. You know, as you get you know, you get family, yeah. you know, you get kids, yeah, relationships, things change. But there's always that one core strand all the way through it, mm. which always stays there. And if the sooner you can recognize that, mm. the sooner you can get the sort of professional life that is powerful and meaningful for you. Mm. I love that. Because when we'd spoken prior to this conversation, I didn't know that you had a book in the pipeline. So um, that's great. Can people pre-order it? Yeah, um, I'm, st- I'm still writing it at the minute, like, but it's, uh, you know, with Amazon, <laughs> I've just got the book cover done. So Amazing. that's cool. So yeah, I'll, I'll 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 obviously let you know when I when that's all up and running. But... Yeah. Wow. Well, we'll we'll put in the show notes your LinkedIn profile so people can follow you. Brilliant. Um, but that's really exciting news. Um, at the time of recording this, it's coming to the end of twenty twenty three. So that's exciting for the new year. Um, that's been a real pleasure to speak to you, Keith. Thank you for that. Well, thank you very much, Tony. It's a great to have an opportunity to talk about just working class people. You know, we don't often get a chance to do that. We don't. That's why I'm here. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs>